0: Well, if you want to keep your Bibles open uh, and we'll spend a moment asking God to help us understand what he's saying to us today from this passage. So why don't we pray together? Let's pray. (coughs) Father, as we come together today to hear you, as we have heard your word spoken, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves in light of what you have to say. That through your spirit this morning, as we've opened your word You would make your word come alive and change the way we think about ourselves and the world around us and send us out into that world with great boldness because of the hope we have in your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments of clarity in life where you kind of look back over your life, over what's gone on, and you kind of start thinking, what have I done with my life? Why, why am I here? Am I kind of, have I done what I want to do? Uh, it was only a couple of years ago, after I turned 35, that I realized that I was now past the point of being in the Olympics. I know, shock. Now, some of you are going, you could probably still get in for shooting and rhythmic gymnastics. I know that's what you're thinking, right? But there's no way that that's possible. Uh, maybe for shooting, I'm not really into that. You could kind of learn it as you go along, but kind of like... Sorry, sorry, this might be a bit offensive, but like the good, the good sports, right? Like the 100-metre sprint, the 100-metres in a pool. I'm not likely to swim 100 metres in under 50 seconds. I'm just not likely, basically because of my skin colour, but also because of my age, and then there's my fitness. It just won't happen. Um, not, not running 100 metres, that's definite, under, under 10 seconds. So there's a really loud echo up here. Are you guys fixing that? Oh, great, because it's spinning me out. <laughs> there's a sense in which i look back in life and i ask myself what have i done like is this it am i really happy with what's gone on so far have you ever ever found yourself in that position thinking is this really all there is being dissatisfied looking at your own competence or incompetence as the shoe fits often for me you know i've never held that olympic medal above my head and heard the national anthem play Even as I think about my role here at EV, I'm like, you know, EV hasn't grown like Apple has grown. You know, it's not the largest company in the world. Why does Steve Jobs get all the glory? Why does his company become a a huge thing when the, the gospel that we're speaking of as a church is so much more important than some crazy products that kind of we speak on the phone to and tap on all day long? So often... I feel perplexed about what to do in life, even in church. So often I feel ill-equipped to week by week stand and open the Scriptures and apply them to me and others. It's tiring, it's hard, and I just don't feel like I've got the equipment that I need. And if I'm honest, there are moments where I stand and look at what we're doing as a church and even Christianity and start to wonder, is Christianity really that significant? And insignificance starts to creep in in the back of my mind. It's not there, but there's this sense where you ask yourself, is this the real deal? Have you ever experienced that? Are you experiencing that now? Have you come along today thinking through, who is this God and this Christianity? doesn't seem that flash. Is this something I want to give my life to? Well, today we're going to see that what life is about is something that is far more glorious than the glories we so often look at. And we're going to see that the incompetence that we feel is exactly right. It's the feeling we should feel. Because our efforts don't achieve that much compared to the one who is competent. And that is the God who has met us in the person of his son. He is doing something much more glorious than than our world has ever seen or ever will see. But first, as we open up this next section of this letter that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, we begin by seeing Paul's insignificance and incompetence. And he very much recognizes that in himself. Paul's ministry looked weak to the super apostles. Remember this Corinthian church? They had these super apostles amongst them who were great in all that they did. They they kind of were amazing in the way they talked through things. They had great eloquent speech. And the Corinthian church was being pulled towards them. And then there's Paul. He steps up to the plate, you know, and and it's it's not that great what he is doing. Listen to him in verse 12 of chapter 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, the Lord opened a door for me. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus, but I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. Now, Now what's what's going on there? That's a weird little bit. There's a door opening. He came to Troas to preach. Some door opens, but he has no rest in his spirit. What's Paul saying? To the charge of the Corinthians who are saying, Paul, you're no super apostle. You're incompetent and weak. Paul says, exactly. I'm so incompetent and weak that when I went to Troas, there were these gospel opportunities for me, the apostle to the Gentiles. And there were opportunities before me that would have been fruitful, could have been fruitful about seeing the news of God spread out. But I... I couldn't take them i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't do it i was so kind of overwhelmed with what was going on with you as a church and wondering what titus was going to say that there were opportunities to share the news of jesus and i couldn't take them he stuffed it up he was distracted he had no rest he was anxious he's worried and this is paul So much so at this point that he has to leave for Macedonia and leave this open door for Christian ministry. How weak. Is he really the one through whom God's powerful message can come? Sometimes I've wondered if there'd be a week that I I can't preach. For whatever reason, things haven't happened rightly throughout the week and I just have to get up in front of church and read the Bible. Let's just open up the scriptures and read that. and, And part of me would hate that. Part of me is like, that's horrible. Why haven't you had things together wrong? It would show my incompetence, my frustration, my weakness. I imagine that's kind of what Paul felt as he had to leave this great gospel opportunity. He couldn't deliver. He's incompetent. Now, lots of people think these verses don't link with what's coming next. Some people say, really, Paul takes a break from verses 2.14 all the way through to kind of chapter 7, verse 5. But I think there's some really helpful things that link us together that actually do show Paul meant to put this in order. Some say, oh no, this was later inserted in by others or by someone else. But no, no, no. Have a look with me at how these link together. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. Paul says, "...but thanks be to God, who always puts us on display in Christ, and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place." For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others an aroma of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? What Paul's picking up on here is an image, an illustration that would have been one of the most impressive sights in the ancient world. When a king or, or general or leader came home from war and, and had conquered, they would come through kind of like a ticket tape parade and be celebrating on this great parade with the army in tow. And they'd also have the prisoners behind them, the ones that they captured while they were away. And the town would come out and say, you know, this town, this city, this country, we are glorious. The leaders are great. It would be an amazing celebration of the leader who is in front and everyone will be laughing at the stench of death at those at the back who are about to die because they had been conquered. He's using this illustration that shows that God is victorious. Through Paul and Paul's message, God is, this, is showing this aroma of life. That God gives life through the gospel message that Paul speaks. And Paul here, as he, as he talks about this, says that this is pointing forward to what God is like. The people will be praising God for the way he has worked, for his competence, for his goodness. But notice where Paul puts himself in this procession. I'd like to put myself at, at, the, kind of, at the front of the procession, right? When you're leading in front of everyone else. But Paul puts himself not at the front, but being led. See, he sees himself not as one of the victorious generals, So that role belongs to Christ alone. But as one of the prisoners, defeated, chained enemy, who brings glory to the king by being publicly shamed, Paul says, I'm way back at the back of the line. My incompetence, my weakness, my brokenness at the back of this line, my humiliation points to how great my king is. This whole thing of Paul's incompetence, points to how great God is in his competence. So look with me at God's competence. God is so competent. He can use weak and feeble people like Paul to bring life to people, to move them from darkness to light, from death to life. God is the one that uses weak people like us to do the same as we speak his message. Now, some see that fragrance, uh, the fragrances of perfume would have been spread around uh, in that kind of procession in, uh, in, in the ancient world. As they came through, There would have been spraying some perfume and sacrificial smells. Some see that fragrance as an aroma of death. The aroma of death as people speak the gospel because they don't trust it. I think this is horrible. This, this gospel proclamation is yuck. It's not something that I, I want to be a part of. What Paul's saying is, as he proclaims the gospel, people hate him. As you speak of the Jesus who has saved you, people will hate you. The words you say will be an aroma of death. They will hate it. It will stink to them. It will be repulsive. Now, As I thought through what's an example of a repulsive smell, there was a whole heap of places I could have gone to kind of help us get this. But the one that kind of hits me the most, kind of helpful for this illustration, is I just hate, I'm sorry if any of you have worked or do work here, I hate the smell of walking into farmers. You walk in through that perfume section, right? And there's, there's, if anyone works there, I'm sorry, but there's these ladies with these spray bottles chasing you. They're spraying into the air this smell, which to me sounds like the, smells like the smell of death, right? Because as people get old, they use more and more perfume. And it's just, this is the smell of death. As you get older and older, I'm like, ah, and it's coming in my nostrils. I'm like, this is disgusting. I want to run. And it's like Chanel number five. I'm like a Rowan's running out of here. Like, it's horrible. I hate it. I've always had this thing. I just can't stand the smell of it. Uh, I, I literally hold my breath and see if I can get the whole way through every time I walk through the gauntlet or I go another way. And to the world around us, as we proclaim the message that Paul proclaims. They hold their breath and run the other way and say, that is just such a horrible stench. I want nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with this message that you're saying. And there's the temptation for the Corinthian church at this point to take that on. To actually come along and go, I I don't want to follow this. But Paul says, to those God is calling to himself, it is the aroma of life. I don't know how to apply the same illustration as the aroma of life. Maybe it's that as you get older, you get more wise, and so you should put on more perfume. I don't know if that's something that I'm missing, and as I get older, I'll understand why that happens. Uh, maybe it's also... Be... No, I won't go there. Um, I was just going to say, my, my, my nostrils have burnt out already, so I've got to use more of it, just in case you're wondering. But Paul says, To those God is calling to him to himself, this gospel is the message of life. It's a message of great Great glory. And he's going to show us what that glory is in a second. But his whole point is that his weakness points to God's competence in what God is doing through a weak messenger. In 1555, a guy by the name of Hugh Latimer, he's a reformer, he had worked so hard to bring the church of that time to come to recognize that the Bible was the ultimate authority. Uh, he, he said this to the Roman Catholic Church. And to Elizabeth, who was Queen of England at the time, he's in England, he said, "Not Elizabeth, Mary, in case you worry, sorry about that. Christ made one oblation and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and that a perfect sacrifice. Neither needeth there to be, nor can there be any other propitiatory sacrifice. My Elizabethan English isn't great. What he's saying is Jesus died once for all. This idea of the Roman Catholic Church of coming and re-sacrificing Christ in the Eucharist, in the Mass, is, is wrong. And we need to recognize there's only been one who has died for us, and that is Jesus. And I will stand on that point. I will not recant. But that message that Jesus was the true and perfect sacrifice was a stench in the nose of Queen Mary. And so he was burned at the stake. Burned at the stake for that statement. As he's being burned, as the flames lick up around, the aroma of death was going off and Mary's saying how good this is. This is horrible, the thing that he's saying. Listen to the words that Latimer was recorded to say. He's there with his friend, Mr. Ridley, who's also being burned at the stake. He says this, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, as the flames are engulfing them and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. And that gospel message did go out and God brought life through this perceived weakness. These men who were being burnt at the stake. This man called Paul who was incompetent and stumbled. And the Corinthian church was not anything special. As we suffer to proclaim the message, the message is powerful. And God's message spreads the knowledge of God everywhere. For it is an aroma of life to those God is bringing to himself. God is competent, friends. Not us, but God. And so is his method of pointing people to himself and his message. See, it's so tempting for us as we think through this news of who Jesus is and what he's done to want to make it more palatable to the world around us. It's so tempting to kind of censor the word of God so it doesn't offend people that God's view doesn't offend them, that his view of men and women and how relationships should work when it butts up against culture, we cringe, we step back. We don't hold it forth as, as light, as good. We pull back from that. When we, we say there is only one way, like Latimer did, there's only one sacrifice, Jesus Christ who has died in our place. The world around us says, oh, you're intolerant. You're bigots. And we pull back and we change what we say or we just censor what we say. The reminder here is the message will be the stench of death to the world around us, but we are not to pull back. We are not to scale it back or hold back like Christianity is merely a crutch to get you through life a little bit better. Don't be tempted to change the message to make it look better. Or what's really going on most probably is I change the message so that I look better. So I don't believe something that's such a stench of death to the world around us. Are are you similar? Paul says in verse 17... For we are not like the many who market God's message for profit. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. He speaks with sincerity in Christ for the message is from God. And he speaks it not before the world, but before God. The message that gives life is not the message that says that if you come to Jesus, life will get better. So many in our world see Jesus as a crutch that helps me get through life, that that makes life a little bit more palatable, that makes life a bit better. He's the optional extra on life. You know, you can have life and happiness and then you bolt on religion. And you know what? Religion just makes life a bit better. And you should just come to religion and come to Jesus because he'll make your life better. Or people that come along with an even stronger message and say, the message Jesus brings is that you'll have health, wealth and prosperity right now. Life will be, you know. I always say this. Life will be like a reverse country and western song. I don't know if you've heard me say this before. If you've listened to country, who listens to country and western songs? Show of hands. Everyone's too ashamed. <laughs> uh, country western's great. In country and western songs, what happens is like the guy's truck broke. You know, his his girlfriend goes away from him. His dog dies. The world's horrible. The prosperity gospel comes through like a reverse country and western song and says, well, you get your truck back, you're going to get your dog back and all these women are now going to love you and life is just going to be awesome. That's not the promise of the scriptures. The promise of the scriptures is that life will be hard. That life here will be the aroma of the stench of death to the world around us. The health, wealth and prosperity that we Will and could experience, even if we had the best life ever in this life, will be infinitesimal, if that's a word. it just be this tiny little blip on the radar of eternity. And we exchange so often the hope that lasts for forever for something that is so short sighted. The message of the gospel is that Jesus died, He faced what we deserved. So that we could be treated as he deserved. He gave his life for us. No one around us will see Jesus as all satisfying. If they think that we've come to him so that we might experience health and wealth and prosperity. They'll be seeking satisfaction in and joy in and hope in. Not Jesus. But health and wealth and prosperity, that's why I come. If that's what we proclaim, if that's how we water down the word of God so we're more palatable to the world around us, we've sold out Jesus. We've sold out God's method of bringing people to himself and the message for something that we think is better. Paul says, look at us in our incompetence. Look at us, apostles, in our brokenness. We stink to the world around us. We're nothing like these super apostles. We aren't palatable to the world. Our message sucks. It doesn't bring what the world wants. But it brings what the world needs. We need Jesus' death in our place. For the moment that we come before the true and living God and face Him for how we've treated Him, unless Jesus stands in our place, we're on our own two feet We need to stand before God and and take the penalty, the wrath, the judgment for what we have done for not treating him as God. All of us have done it. All of us deserve death and judgment and hell. All the happiness that this life could offer is but a blip compared to eternity. And God is saying, do you not see what I have done? Do you not see the glory of this message that brings life? of Jesus' death in our place and his resurrection. As we think about how we spread this gospel message, how we speak to others about this gospel message, and that's the context that Paul's talking about here, is how we tell others about this, how we have confidence in it. As we think about that, I start to feel incompetent, weak. How can I do this? How can I see people move from death to life? I feel incompetent in life, in, in gospel ministry. But Paul's little excerpt into what happened at Troas is to remind us. The moment we think that we can be competent so that people can come to know Christ is the moment that we think we are more competent than Paul. Do we really think that I've got it more together than Paul? That Paul here who says, I don't have it together. I, I, I was scared at this point. I was so anxious. I couldn't even do it. You know, I stopped it when I was at Troas. Do we go, yes, but I'm not like Paul? My theology is not like his. Mine's much more robust. You know, my my boldness, my ability, my... (laughs) No, weakness shows God is competent. As we hold to the gospel God has given us, as we speak it in the way God has given to us to speak, not watering it down, but speaking the truth. For it is life, the aroma of life to some, and the aroma of death to others. Now, this has got implications for the way that we relate to others as well. See, we can't expect others to be anything other than feeble and weak, can we? If Paul's feeble and weak and he's this, the apostle to the Gentiles, we can't expect others to be better than Paul was, better than we are. We need to be careful what we expect of our bosses, of our husbands and wives, of our friends and family, our pastors. Our leaders, our connect group leaders, the teams we lead, there's the temptation to think that everyone should have it all together. No, we should be pointing to the one who has it all together, yes. But our competence is not in, look at me, look at what I can do, but in, do we clearly and helpfully point people to the message God has given us? That Jesus died and rose again and is God the Son. That's what it needs to be about. And so we need to watch our relationships with others, that we don't expect more of them than we do of ourselves, than Paul says of himself, than God does of us. But the good news is God uses weak people like me and you to bring people from death to life. There's a glorious nature to the incompetence that we have because God is held high as the one at the front of the procession. It's not flashy ministry. Not like the peddlers of the word who do it for profit. Paul's like, not like that. No big jets and miraculous stories. Just point to the one miracle of Jesus rising from the dead. Point to the miracle of what he has done and who he is and what he offers us in the future. We are freed to be people who just plainly and straightforwardly set forth the word of God. That's what we're called to do. Broken, incompetent, Weak people whose message seems stupid to the world around us. Yet look, here we are today, 2,000 years later, because people have spoken the word. People like Latimer have stood up and said, no, I'm going to hold to what the Bible says. Then we get to this next section where Paul links his incompetence with God's competence in what he has done. And he shows the Corinthian church what God has done by his word. And how you can see the competence of God. Basically, his answer in this next section of God's competence is, the proof of God being in this is in the pudding. The Corinthians were doubting Paul's ministry. But Paul says, you yourselves, Corinthian church, are proof of God's power through my weakness. Because you've moved from death to life. Because the Spirit is in you. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, a letter of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. It's clear that you are Christ's letter produced by us, not written with ink, but the spirit of the living God. Not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. Paul says, you want proof of the pudding? Look at you. God's Spirit lives in you. He has changed you. He has moved you from death to life. One of the ways we work out if a ministry is a sham or not is seeing if people are truly converted, are truly trusting in Jesus, are truly saying my only hope is that Jesus died for me and as I come before God on that final day, my only hope is that I can say Jesus died in my place and I trust Him. He is my Lord. He is the one I try to serve. But He has died for me. If people are saying that, then that ministry has been truly effective. It doesn't mean that large numbers of church, if you've got a huge church, that it was effective, although it might do, if they really are Christians. It doesn't mean we should go around and check on everyone. Are you really a Christian in that church? Oh, they're not really Christians in that church. No, no. no. We just need to be focused on the reality that God works through His Word, through this message. And the proof is in the pudding. And what had happened to these Corinthians i.e., the pudding, was amazing. That's what Paul calls the glory of the new covenant. The glory of the new covenant. Come and have a look, verse 4 of chapter 3. We have this kind of confidence toward God through Christ. It's not that we're competent in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our competence is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit produces life. What he's saying is that there's something new that is happening here. That Paul is a minister of a new covenant, far better than the old. Now I imagine for the people in this church, these super apostles are coming in and saying these signs, these religious rituals, they're important things to do from Judaism. Let's keep circumcising, let's keep offering these sacrifices uh, and and the, the Corinthians are like, yes, this seems right. This seems glorious. And as they think through what a glorious moment is and, and what glory is throughout the Old Testament, well, there's one event that would surely come to their mind. The event of Moses when he got the Ten Commandments from God. Uh, Israel are camped out of the base of Mount Sinai. And God has them there. He has them cleanse themselves and says, do not come up to me or I'll kill you all. And then they hear God's voice. The whole of Israel gathered as they've come out of Egypt They're at the base of Sinai. They hear God's voice billow and they go, Moses, you go. This is too scary to go near God. We're hearing God rumble and there's flashes of lightning and thunder and God speaks. So Moses goes up the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments from God chiseled in stone and then comes back down the mountain. Have a listen to the way that uh, it's described in Exodus 34. It's on the screen. As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he descended the mountain... He did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them. And so Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him and Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near and he commanded them to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. After he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded, and the Israelites would see Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. Imagine being around someone that had been in the presence of God and seeing their face radiate. You're like, I'm going to listen to that dude, right? Right? Like they, their face is shining. They're like, whoa, look at I'm scared to come near you. They're like, we need to put a, a veil over your face because you've been in, in some sense the presence of God. That's a glorious ministry. That's a ministry that's like, whoa, I, I want to be there. That seems like it's got power. Uh, that's like, this guy is connected with God. I want to hear from him. What could be more glorious than the ministry that Moses brought for when he brought it, his face shone. And for the Corinthian church, they're probably getting caught up in that Old Testament law and really seeing that as as religious things to tick off, but they've been given something newer and better. Paul says, the old covenant was glorious. Moses' face shone. But the new covenant, this new promise, what God is doing in you, Corinthian church, and in you, EV, is even more glorious than that. There's something greater going on than that, And he gives us these three if-then statements. It's helpful when you're reading your Bible to have a look at how it's structured. There's these three ifs that help you work out the comparison between what Moses had said and then what now Paul is speaking that has been fulfilled in this new covenant. The first if-then talks about the ministry of death that came through Moses and the ministry of the Spirit that comes through Jesus. Look at verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in letters of stone, came with glory so the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, a fading glory, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? This ministry that I'm speaking to you, he says, is even more glorious than what went on for Moses. Now, Moses' ministry ended up being a ministry of death. I don't know if you know what happened after he came down the mountain, after he told them what had been said. They all rebelled while he was away and hundreds of thousands of them died because they knew then how they should have lived and they rejected that. They made a golden calf and they died. The ministry Moses brought was true. It was God's word about how they should live, but no one could live up to it. No one could live God's way rightly and perfectly. They all stumbled. And within that law, there was a sacrificial system that recognized that. But that law, Paul tells us in Romans, brought death. It showed everyone that no one could live God's way perfectly. There was no one righteous, not even one, Paul says, in Romans 3. All have turned away from God. The law shows us that we, we stumble, that we can't live up to it. And what Paul brings in now, what, this, what has taken fruit in the life of the Corinthian church, is the law of the spirit of life. the the work of the Spirit. And that had been promised. It's helpful to kind of know your Bible and know the promise that came. Uh, Start thinking to yourself, where was this Spirit coming promised? Well, flick to Jeremiah 31. It's an easy one to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Jeremiah says this, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant, a new promise with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant they broke even though I had married them, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is the Lord's declaration. I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, said, that There is a day coming when the new covenant comes. A day that your hearts will be changed. And Paul says that day has come, and you now are experiencing that reality, Corinthian church. He's saying to you, Ev. That if you trust in Jesus, that is the reality for you. God the Spirit lives in you. You have been given a new heart and God is changing you to be more like Him. And as God looks at you, He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus who died in your place. So our sin is paid for. It is done. This new covenant is far better. That's the first if-then. The second if-then, comparing the two, is... Moses' ministry brought condemnation, but Paul's ministry brought justification. Look at verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, i.e. Moses, the Ten Commandments, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. This new covenant ministry that Jesus died in our place and now we have God's spirit in us is amazing compared to what you had before. Don't turn back to it, to religious ritual. Don't go back to trying to think. You can can do it on your own. And the third if then talks about its longevity. Verse 11. For if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Moses' face as he went into the presence of God shone He came down and and, and spoke to Israel about what was going on. It shone, but he then put the veil over, but it would fade away. It wouldn't shine the whole time like a glow stick at night. You crack it, it booms for a while. but The next day, it's just not the same anymore. So was the glory that came as God spoke on the mountain. Wow, he spoke. And he gave this good and true law that they could follow, but that showed them that they were sinners. But it faded but the glory you now have, the glory that has come through this weak and incompetent kind of uh, vessel called Paul, who, who now points people to Jesus, does not fade. Have you ever seen the moon at night? And a full moon night. You know those nights you go outside and it's, it's a full moon. Usually if you've got kids, they're a bit crazy. I don't know why that lines up. But there's, you go outside and the, and the moon's full and you can kind of almost see everything. And you look at the moon and it's just so bright. And you're like, wow, it's breathtaking to see the moon. You see some of the craters and you're like, that is such a bright moon. But next day, at 12 o'clock in the middle of the day, even though the moon's out, you can't even see it. It's just faded away because of the brilliance of the sun. Paul says to the Corinthian church, the glory that you now behold is like the difference between the moon and the sun. The difference between Moses' glory and the glory we now have. It, it fades away in the daytime, what Moses did. It was good and glorious and amazing, yes, but now you have Christ. You have relationship with God. You have access to God, the Spirit in you. This is amazing. He says, when people read the old law, they miss that it was always pointing forward to the new one. Just like the, the moon displays the sun's light, it's just that we can't see the sun. So in Moses' age, they couldn't see Jesus, the son. But when Jesus came and died and rose again, people could see the brilliance of who Jesus was. If they recognized who Jesus was, they suddenly saw God's full glory. But to some in this Corinthian church, they didn't see the glory of Jesus. They looked at this old covenant. For some here today, we miss the glory of Jesus because we're looking at what we think gets us through life, our religious practices and principles. We miss that Jesus fulfills the whole lot that this new ministry that Paul brings by the Spirit gives life and is glorious. And so because Paul has grasped onto this reality, despite his incompetence and weakness, he speaks with great boldness. The freedom the Spirit brings gives him great boldness. As he brings this message of life to the Corinthian church, This message that is no longer um, kind of distant and veiled like Moses' law was, but has direct access to God. It's, It's a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's an experience that we can experience ourselves today. You can know God. I don't know if you've thought about that. If you trust in Jesus, you can speak directly to God. That never happened. Moses was in his presence, hid away, cleft in a rock, And his face still shone like crazy, that everyone else was afraid. Yet we have direct access to God because what Jesus has done on the cross—he has died in our place and offered us life. Do you see how amazing that is? Just dwell on this for a moment. We're in the presence of the Sun, not this reflected light from the Moon anymore. But we can we can see God, we can know God through His Word to us. It's an amazing joy. It's an amazing privilege because God lives in us. I confess that so often I get just tired of stuff that I know that has been there in the Christian life and it just gets a bit boring, a bit insignificant, a bit, yeah, I've heard this before. Today, Paul is grabbing our minds and saying, see Moses, see how glorifying that was, how amazing that was. You've got like a billion times more in Jesus. Jesus. Do you believe that? Does that capture your life? Because there's one more part of it that I think is even more amazing. Not only do we get to see, we have the freedom to see God and know God and hear Him in His word. But look at verse 18. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. Like we're seeing Him, right? And are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord, who is spirit. Not only do we see God's glory, but we get to be involved in it and transformed into it. Here I am living life going, oh, I want the glory of an Olympic athlete. I'd be great to see things go really well. How great that would be. I want to have a significant life. And through weakness and suffering, Paul says, if you trust Jesus Ron, you are being transformed into the glory of the true and living God. You, church, if you trust in Jesus, are being changed into God's glory, to share in that glory. God's glorification project has already happened in you. Through this seemingly weak and powerless message and this weird way of people talking about a guy who died and rose again, you get that this is more glorious than even what Moses did. So as God, by His Spirit, grows you more and more like Jesus, you put sin to death, you're glorifying God. When you trust God in good and hard times, you're bringing Him glory and you're sharing in His glory. When you step out in faith and share Jesus, that glorifies God. When you stand in that procession of people being led by God, looking to the world like an aroma of death, and you point to Jesus, you are sharing in the glory of the true and living God. When you make the effort to love the challenging person who's made in the likeness of Christ, when you decide to be generous with the resources God's given you, When you invest in the growth of God's kingdom and his church, you're being made into the likeness of Christ. You are sharing in the glory of God. When you decide, what the heck, you only live once, I'm going to speak to my friends lovingly, carefully, truthfully, but about Jesus. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to risk it. That is glorious. More glorious than the ministry of Moses himself. And you get to be caught up in it. You get to be transformed into it. There are so many voices in our world trying to pull us away to a different glory. Trying to allure us from our confidence in the gospel and confidence in Jesus. Which ones do you give into? What other pictures of glory are pulling you away now? Do you think life in its fullness does live being happy like the rest of our world does? Or have you seen that there is far more to life than just the here and now and that true happiness comes from knowing that God died in my place? He rose again and I can speak to Him as my Father. And God, the Spirit lives in me. Where do you feel the pull of another glory? It's crazy because these glories that pull us away from the glory found in the gospel, the glory that Paul proclaims, they're not permanent. They don't last Forever they're fleeting. Sure, they look great, like the moon. (laughs) But when the sun comes out, oh, how pathetic and feeble they look. When through Jesus we have access to God. The glory we have as Christians doesn't hinge on my performance or my competence. It's not a glory that I can lose. It's not a glory that's temporary. It's a glory that is indestructible. A glory that is... 100% certain, it is permanent it is never fading it is kept in heaven for us, Peter says it is eternal because it ultimately relies on the work of Jesus at the cross not on our goodness not on our competence but whether or not God has called us to himself by the work of his spirit so we may trust in him so Paul ends 3.12 with this little therefore Having such a hope, we use great boldness. Having such a hope, we use great boldness. Through his incompetence, his brokenness, his weakness. He is bold, not just in living, but in proclaiming the message of the true and living God. is that what we are as a church, bold? Do we trust that this message is glorious, It's my prayer that I would give up on half-hearted, short-lived, weak, and impotent false glory. And that we as a church will be drawn to the glory that comes through Christ. For he is transforming us day by day into his likeness to share in his glory. What a joy that is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have not veiled the reality of Jesus to us, that we are not left stuck staring at the moon thinking there is no sun, but that you have shown us the image of the invisible God, Jesus who came and lived and died in our place and has risen again and dealt with our sin. We're sorry that so often we exchange the glory that we could share in for some temporary false things that lead us astray. So often we get caught up in the world around us rather than recognizing how amazing it is to be called your children, to be called Jesus' brother, to have God the Spirit in us. We pray that by your Spirit, you would keep convicting us, you would keep molding us, you keep changing us and transforming us into the likeness of your Son. And today, Lord, for those who are here who have maybe seen your glory for the first time and want in, We ask that you would bring us to trust in Jesus. Move us from death to life. Help us to see how amazing this is and start this glorious life. May this word be an aroma of life, not an aroma of death. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen.